Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We've got Dr. Cal Beisner joining me this hour. I'm looking forward to hearing from him. I was reading an article online, and it was written by none other than Cal Beisner. I thought, I'm going to call him and hear it right from the horse's mouth. He is the founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance. You can go to cornwallalliance.org to learn more about Cal and his amazing think tank of thinkers. Cal, welcome. Well, gee, thanks, Bill, but... What kind of horse am I? Ah, uh, well, you're the one that's <laughs> you're the one that's going to talk in the next uh, twenty minutes. That's the one. Oh, so I mean, this is like Mr. Ed, huh? Exactly. I love Mr. Ed. That was a great show. <laughs> it was, yeah. Who doesn't love a talking right, hey, horse? Thanks very much for having me back on the on the show, Bill. I yeah. really appreciate it. Well, you wrote an article with VJ uh, about uh, climate scientists admit exaggerated warming, and that caught my attention. Yeah, uh, you know, this is a, a kind of a rare thing, but there is a, a group of scientists uh, who who uh, have studied, uh, who have recently published something that acknowledges that the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is relying on models that, it, that exaggerate global warming. And what's amazing about this is that these scientists actually are scientists involved in the IPCC. Uh, this is kind of the, the first time the IPCC uh, has had people come out and admit this. So this story is headlines in the news, no? Uh, no, the story is largely ignored by okay. most of the media. And why is that? typical for this. Well, you know, part of it is just the old journalists saying that bad news is good news and good news is no news. Right. Uh, that's because, you know, human psychology being what it is, people get excited about reading stories about crisis, about existential threats and tragedies and whatnot. Sure. And they're not really all that interested in, in uh, positive, uh, you know, good news. And, of course, eyeballs are what advertisers pay for, and yeah, advertisers point. pay the bills for the journalists. You know, So, hey, you, you don't see many good news uh, articles. Um, but another part of it is, frankly, that so much of the journalistic community and so much of the political community, and unfortunately even so much of the scientific community, are committed to the notion of catastrophic man-made global warming uh, to the point where they're simply not willing to allow uh, balancing information to see the light of day. Um, you know, clear back in the 1980s, the Society of Environmental Journalists actually adopted a resolution saying that they should no longer try to do objective reporting about environmental issues. They should be advocates. Hmm. Well, as a former newspaper reporter and editor and the son of a lifelong uh, journalist, 
I can tell you that is death knell to true journalistic uh, writing. You have to do your very best to be objective, and, and that's not what these folks are doing. But the cool thing on this is that uh, we now have it from people on the inside that, uh, that the, the models on which the IPCC relies um, are, are causing, you know, or rather they're, they're simulating too much warming. Uh, and uh, so this is, this is discussed in an article in Science magazine uh, by Paul Vusen that came out back on July 27th. And uh, uh, part of what that says is that as climate scientists face this alarming reality, the climate models that help them project the future have grown a little too alarmist. Many of the world's leading models are now projecting warming rates that most scientists, including the model makers themselves, believe are implausibly fast. Uh, now, you know, these new admission, admissions frankly reaffirm findings from clear back in 2014 and 2019 that most models exaggerate warming, uh, though the evidence is that they exaggerate not just a little bit, but a lot. Frankly, uh, the fifth generation of these computer models, the ones that uh, underlay the 2013 fifth assessment report from the IPCC, on average, they they modeled about two to four times as much warming as actually observed. Uh, now the sixth generation, you would think that they might be improved by now, but the sixth generation, which underlie this latest assessment report from the IPCC, they overstate warming even worse, uh, anywhere from about two to five times hmm. the actual observed warming. Uh, which indicates that the roughly $40 billion a year that governments uh, pay to computer modelers for climate models isn't buying them much. Um, that's that's very interesting, Cal. Um, some of these, some of the scientists and what they have found, acknowledging that these uh, models have errors, is that going to be mm-hmm. a, a step for climate science to sort of uh, let the pendulum swing back into the middle a little bit more? Or is that going to return uh, to a little bit of normalcy, or what well, do you one think? One would hope so. Yeah. You know, historically, science has been fairly self-correcting, uh, <laughs> partly because skepticism is of the very essence of science, uh, a, a great uh, philosopher of science, uh, Robert Merton, back in the 1930s, wrote about that fact, um, that uh, in many other uh, endeavors, skepticism is, is sort of a, you know, a, a, what, a, a, a weakness or okay. uh, something considered sinful. But Merton said that uh, uh, the institution of science makes skepticism a virtue. And so, you know, science can be self-correcting until it becomes highly politicized, and then the self-correcting process becomes a whole lot slower. But I think we may be beginning to see that happening now with climate science. Interesting, Cal. Are some of these scientists more willing to uh, test some of the uh, climate doomsday narratives now? Yeah, I think some of them are. Um, You know, this, uh, the... uh, the statement by, <laughs> excuse me, um, by uh, 
Oh, I'm looking for it here in my article. Uh, Gavin Schmidt has been, uh, he is the uh, director of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies at NASA. He says, quote, it's become clear over the last year or so that we can't avoid this. Uh, and, and that is the fact that the models run hot. That's a good in, uh, good uh, admission, particularly by Schmidt, because Schmidt has, for the past oh, roughly 20 years, been one of the most adamant critics of anybody who says that the models run hot. So, you know, this is kind of like a a major conversion going on here. Interesting. Um, there's um, there's one narrative that I think most people hear. And that is mild hysteria. So as Christians, yeah, well, I'm trying to be gentle here. Um, Is it more than mild? It's extreme. Is it extreme or where where does it lie? Well, I mean, you know, a a few years ago we had uh, AOC telling us that we have only uh, only 12 years to solve the climate problem or or we're all dead. We've got uh, we've got the uh, the uh, Swedish girl Greta Thunberg and telling us all that uh, you know that we are killing the planet and uh, many of her followers think that that they won't grow up that they won't reach adulthood wow. that humanity will go extinct before then so I'd say that's not really mild. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, but as Christians, we start to see how. The slight warming has been really helpful for people around the world in terms of feeding each other and or feeding oh, uh, the the world, and also the the increase in temperature has been keeping some people from literally dying. Yeah, and there are a variety of ways in which that happens. One of them is simply that as global average temperature rises, and it's risen oh around about one to one and. A, half degrees Celsius since 1850. Uh, As global average temperature rises, cold snaps become milder and less frequent and and last shorter times. Well, cold snaps on average kill 20 times as many people per day as heat waves. So even if we were seeing heat waves uh, increase as much as cold snaps are decreasing, we'd be seeing a 20-fold decrease in lives lost because of extreme temperatures. But actually, the heat waves are not increasing in frequency or intensity because most of the warming that's happening is happening toward the poles, that is, in latitudes that don't get that hot anyway, uh, mostly in the winter, not in the hot summers, and mostly at night. So they're raising lower temperatures and not raising higher temperatures. So consequently, it's just a win-win there. But besides that, the warmer temperatures, especially because they're primarily toward the poles, wind up expanding arable land, that is land that we can farm, because places that used to be too cold become warm enough for farming to take place. And that's already clearly been happening. And then besides that, the CO2 that we're adding to the atmosphere that is contributing some to some warming also makes all the plants grow better. And so we've got satellite imagery, for example, that shows very clearly that leaf coverage all over the world is increasing very significantly over the last 50 years or so. And that's good news for everything that eats plants and Mm -hmm. 
everything that eats something that does eat plants. And, and the poor benefit more from this than anybody else. Uh, the value of added crop production from 1960 to 2012 has been estimated to be just about $3.2 trillion solely from this added CO2 in the atmosphere. There are plenty of other you know, causes for other uh, added value, but the CO2 alone, about $3.2 trillion. And then if we forecast from 2012 to 2050, we can expect about, about another $9.8 trillion of extra crop production uh, just because of more CO2 in the atmosphere. So that's mm-hmm. good news. That is good news. Cal, you know when you drink a Mr. Misty too fast and you get that brain freeze? <laughs> you know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this is what happens to Got me it. when I start reading headlines relative to climate change because the climate sci- scientists have admitted there's exaggerated uh, warming. But when we come back, I want to talk about a new climate report that uh, kind of talks the opposite. So, uh, Cal Beisner, Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. We're going to take a little break and be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back. I've got Dr. Cal Beisner as my guest. He is the founder and national spokesman for the CornwallAlliance.org. Every time I go to that website, Cal, I always find very interesting articles written by very smart people. Well, thanks. We we try to make sure that's always the case. (laughs) There's a lot of brainiacs over there at the Cornwall Alliance, and I know you're one of them. But uh, this article that I want to refer to now is actually one written by you. So, you're the expert on this one, and it's this new climate report. It's got you shaking in your boots. Yeah, right. Uh, and, of course, it's about the what's called the sixth assessment report, just out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And, uh, unfortunately, there is a, a very, very consistent phenomenon that happens every time one of these reports comes out. The press releases and the summary for policymakers that come from the IPCC exaggerate badly what's actually said in the substantive science sections of the report. Now, in this case, this this first volume of the report, uh, this is Working Group 1, the physical science basis. This first volume is 3,949 pages long. I confess I have not read it in its entirety yet. Uh, it just came out a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I probably never will read the, uh, the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> but um, in the scientific portion, there's actually a lot of good science, a whole lot of good science. Uh, but the summary for policymakers is put together not by the scientists, but by government bureaucrats from mm. countries all over the world, and it tends to grossly exaggerate what's in the scientific portion, largely in order to promote the policies that the uh, rulers of those countries want. 
such as uh, President Biden now with the United States as a major contributor to the IPCC. Uh, but then the media tend to exaggerate even what comes from the summary for policymakers. And politicians exaggerate what comes from the media. So it's kind of like a, you know, a game of telephone mm-hmm. <laughs> where you, know, you start out with one thing and you wind up with something very, very different. Um, so that's, that's a major problem. But in this case, uh, the, the, the report does a pretty good job. I think it's very responsible in how it, how it talks about extreme weather events. Um, the the media tend to say, oh, there's a great increase in the frequency and the intensity of floods and droughts and hurricanes and tornadoes and wildfires and all sorts of other things uh, because of man-made global warming. Well, the reality is there has been no upward trend in the frequency or intensity of any of those things during the period of so-called man-made global warming. Uh, so <laughs> there's just nothing to explain there. Uh, and the, this report actually makes that pretty clear. Uh, but there is another problem with the report, and that is that it relies very heavily on very extreme scenarios of energy consumption mm-hmm. uh, going off into the future. And let me explain how this works. We talked earlier about how the computer models that the IPCC uses uh, forecast more warmth than is even plausible, uh, not just more than is likely, but that is even plausible. And now even people like Gavin Schmidt of NASA are saying that. Well, why does that happen? It's partly because of the structure of the models themselves. They assume that the various feedback mechanisms that respond to more CO2 in the atmosphere generally uh, increase rather than diminishing the effect of that CO2. And there's some good reason to think that uh, some of them, especially clouds, the most important, uh, actually do the opposite. But the other reason is that all of these models are based on scenarios for the future use of energy that are not just not very likely, but quite implausible and indeed outright false already, proven false. Um, these model, these, these scenarios cooked up by the IPCC all assume that we will continue to use coal and not just continue to use it at the level that we have done in the past, but use more and more and more of it per capita alongside a growing population from now to at least 2080, perhaps 2100. Well, the reality is that starting about 2014, global consumption of coal per capita uh, peaked and began to decline, and there is no reason to think that that's going to turn around anywhere in the near future. But coal is the biggest emitter of CO2 in generating energy. So that means that the assumption behind all these scenarios is already proven false. So Dr. Roger Pilkey of the University of Colorado, a major scholar in this field, has pointed this out. And so the the models start off with wrong scenarios about the future use of energy, and then they plug those scenarios into uh, an understanding of atmospheric chemistry that already exaggerates the impact of CO2, so you get a double exaggeration. 
that's something that really needs to be fixed. And let's hope that maybe by the next assessment report, which might come, oh, another five, six, seven years from now, they will fix that. Yeah, because when you start to hear that, uh, and you mentioned this in your article, that the media will say that it's sinful to use fossil fuels to heat or cool your home or cook your food or power your car. I get real nervous when I start hearing that. I mean, absolutely sinful to disobey God's word. Yeah, because uh, quite clearly, uh, fossil fuels, along with nuclear especially, and run-of-river hydro, um, are the most reliable, uh, the most uh, dispatchable, the most scalable, the most affordable, the most abundant energy sources that we have. And it takes energy to do absolutely everything on which human beings depend for our health and our life. Growing food, transporting it, you know, uh, processing it, uh, making clothing, shelter, transportation, communication, medical care, education, everything that we, you know, that we do depends on energy. And uh, the, the, the sad thing is that what we're being pushed to do is to replace these uh, affordable, abundant, reliable fossil fuels with much more expensive and most importantly, unreliable, unscalable, and intermittent uh, uh, wind and solar energy sources. Uh, and unscalable means it's just not possible to bring them up to the vast amounts of energy that are necessary for a modern economy that actually keeps people out of poverty. And unreliable means, well, <laughs> You can't generate energy from wind when the wind isn't blowing mm-hmm. or from sunlight when the sun's not shining. And they don't blow or shine all the time. They, they get interrupt, interrupted, the sun very regularly and, and wind uh, sporadically. Yeah. And the result is you wind up with a, uh, an inconsistent flow of energy into the grid, which destabilizes it and leads to power blackouts and the like, like what we saw in Texas back in February with the big cold snap there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cal, I just have 30 seconds left, but do you know, are you familiar with Mike Adams? He repeatedly written sure about the benefits of increased CO2 levels that have had on the planet, yes. that it's essential for plant life to flourish. Good guy. He's written some really good stuff in that. Uh, and in these last few seconds, may I just quickly mention of course. that... Uh, in August, we are offering to send free as our way of saying thanks when somebody makes a donation of no matter how small it is at cornwallalliance.org, a study by Robert Bryce called Not in Our Backyard, Rural America is Fighting Back Against Large-Scale Renewable Energy Projects. It's a great study, and it'll help people to keep from winding up with giant wind factories practically in their backyards. Mm that reduce property values and harm health. Cal, thank you so much. Always a delight to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much, Bill. You bet. Dr. Cal Beisner has been my guest, director and founder of the Cornwall Alliance, cornwallalliance.org. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute.
You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Oh, how good are we at listening? I think that's getting to be more and more important as we are talking to people and sharing our faith and uh, learning how to communicate better because we're not doing that very well. I'm so glad to have Dr. Tim Mulehoff as my guest. He is the professor of communication at Biola University, and he's also co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. He's the author of many books. I've read several of them, and I love them all. But the one that we're going to chat about today is called Winsome Conviction, and he is uh, on our studio line right now. Tim, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be with you again. Yeah, I always look forward to it. Um, This whole idea of having uh, the capacity to sit and listen to somebody is really challenging in this world today. Well, we're losing the ability, Bill. Think about it. When as a country, we need to talk about immigration, um, sexuality, gender, uh, critical race theory. We're losing the ability to sit down with a person that we disagree with and have a good, productive conversation. And I think there's a tipping point that's happening in our country, uh, 98% of Americans, think about that, Bill, when we can't agree on anything, 98% of us believe that incivility is a threat to our country, while 67% believe that we're at crisis levels of incivility. So I think the church can offer a difference. Wow. Tim, talk about the idea of prejudgment. What does that mean? Well, prejudgment means heading into the conversation. I've already made a judgment of your perspective. Uh, now, what I yeah, that's think not about helpful. That. <clears throat> well, yeah, based on labels mostly and where our news sources are coming from, or we do a whole chapter on is your small group an echo chamber mm-hmm. where you just share negative ideas about the other side, and that other side could be political, theological. So, if your group just constantly says. Critical race theory is one of the greatest threats to the church. We ought to ban it. I don't understand how anybody can adopt those kind of Marxist beliefs. And and that's all your group talks about is the negative aspects of critical race theory or somebody from a different political party. Then you have a conversation with a person who says, hey, I've been reading about critical race theory. I kind of like it. Well, they get bombarded by what your group has been saying, and now you just list the 15 things that your group has agreed on is negative about critical race theory, you're not listening anymore. You co-opted the talk stage, and now you're giving your rebuttal, not to that person, but to the idea of critical race theory, and listening has been thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. And we oftentimes, as Christians, assume that those of us who are sitting around us are sharing our beliefs. Not always the case. Well, the first book we wrote in this series was called Winsome Persuasion, mm-hmm. uh, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World. Well, it's easier to talk, Bill, to somebody outside the Christian community. It's easier to talk to a non-Christian because I don't assume you hold my values. Right. So th- then when I sit down with somebody in the pew and they pull out this trump card, Bill, this is a beautiful trump card among Christians. Well, clearly the Bible says this. And you're like, hey, listen, it, one, it does not say that. It actually says the exact opposite <laughs> of what you think. It, now you look at each other like, have you lost uh, – do you not read the Bible? <laughs> and that gets us off on so many tangents, and the feelings are hurt. We start to question each other's fidelity to Jesus, 
and then the communication climate starts to become rocky. Yeah, Tim, I was listening to your Winsome Conviction podcast, which is wonderful, by the way. Oh, and, thank you. Yeah, you were talking, uh, is it Richard Langer that you co-wrote this Yeah, Rick, Rick, Langer, Rick Langer, my co-author and yes. co-podcast host. Yeah, yeah. and you made, you made a point which kind of jumped off uh, for me, which was we oftentimes just now trade conclusions with each other. Oh, I wish that was mine. I wish it was mine, but that's the Harvard Negotiation Project. Yeah, okay. That, that, that says, the, now listen, when the Harvard Negotiation Project says this is the biggest mistake we make, you just pay attention. And they said <laughs> it is that, yeah, it's that we sit down and trade conclusions with each other. We don't share how we arrived at the conclusion. Yes, thought that was very interesting. Oh, and the backstory is so important to get, like, how did you arrive at these convictions? What books have you read, movies? Uh, what um, YouTube videos are you watching? What has informed your perspective? What's been your journey? And then where do we agree with each other? Like, like we both could agree that race is important. Like, right, right? As, as a church, we've got to deal with race. But now the question is, should we use critical race theory? Well, well that's great that we established the fact that we both care about race and that the church ought to be active. We're just asking, should we use this one theoretical tool to help us do what we both agree God wants us to do? That's a much better place than just starting by disagreeing about critical race theory. Mm -hmm. In your book, uh, Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church, Dr. Tim Muehlhoff is my guest, of course, and I know you guys are giving uh, some great counsel and encouragement as to how to have disagreements uh, with one another in a productive way. Well, um, pastors are at their wit's end, though. I mean, coming off of a year of COVID. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and then before that was, of course, the murder of George Floyd. Right. Uh, Black Lives Matter. The, the election hasn't gone away. People are still angry about the election. Um and so add all of that, and now let's come together and try to worship together when some of our people will wear a mask, some won't, some thinks it's a conspiracy. So pastors are approaching us and saying, we, we need help on our communication climate, and we need help on how to actually have these conversations. Because if you don't have them, Bill, then it's called latent conflict. It's been pushed under the surface, but it has not gone anywhere, and it's actually ruining all of our conversations because of our, our where we started this interview, because of my attitude towards you is bleeding into the conversation. Wow. And you, you say in the book, the goal of our uh, convictions is to guide our own conduct so that it is pleasing to Jesus, not to guide the conduct, the conduct of others. Well, this is where we're calling people back to spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, do, I do martial arts, Bill. Um, and there's a saying from the founder of karate, Spirit precedes technique, which means you have to have the warrior spirit before you can punch kick. Well, we've adopted that and said we need the Holy Spirit before we get to uh, conflict resolution techniques. So I need to do what Jesus wants me to do, right? What does Peter say? Peter says, I want you not to ins- give insult for insult. That's First Peter 3, 9. I want you to give a blessing instead. Now, listen, Jesus is telling me to do that. Now, I may look at the other person and say, dude, you need to be doing this. But Jesus is saying, hey, I'm working on you, and I will use your kindness to work on that other person. But you need to do what you need to be a peacemaker, 
not a, a troublemaker, and, and I will deal with the other person, but I'm probably going to use your good conduct to, to uh, convict them and to be an example to them. And that is so unsatisfying, Bill. It is so <laughs> yeah. unsatisfying mm-hmm. to do that, right? Yeah. You talk about Christians, however, share a commitment to the authority of Scripture and therefore should share the same absolutes. Since convictions are about absolutes, we all share the same absolutes. All Christians should share the same convictions. So uh, we are still going to have disagreements and different perspectives, and how do we navigate our way through things that we should all share as absolutes? Well, we're borrowing from C.S. Lewis's brilliant metaphor of the hallway of faith Mm -hmm. and then rooms off to the side of the hallway. So I think as an evangelical, uh, we can have confessional beliefs like uh, Jesus is Lord. Salvation is found in Christ alone. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. That's the hallway, and we want to keep the hallway really narrow. Now, rooms off the hallway would be, to me, theological things like, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Do you believe God micromanages life, or do you believe that he gives us free will and we're kind of— we can do things that are against his will. Are you an egalitarian or a complementarian, right? Do you believe that the man is the head of the marriage spiritually, or do you believe that they're co-leaders of the marriage? To me, those are rooms off the hallway that there's going to be disagreements about. So let's focus on the hallway and then give charity and intellectual humility to the disagreements we're for sure going to have, like the age of the earth, can a Christian be a theistic evolutionist? Can he believe that God used evolution, right? Now, Bill, here's what people do. They're not satisfied with that whatsoever because my room is incredibly important, and I want to make it the hallway. <laughs> so then what we do is we weaponize our beliefs. So here, here's one example we use in the book. So, in a gal- so a complementarian who believes that the man is the spiritual head of the marriage and, women, and, and a wife would lovingly submit – they say, do you believe the Trinity is part of the hallway? And I'll say, yes, I, I think the Trinity is part of the hallway. Well, egalitarians, by the way that they um, apply the Bible, are undermining the Trinity. See how they see the move they just made? I'm going to attach my room to something in the hallway. Thus, you are wrong if you're an egalitarian. Mm. We call that weaponizing a belief. Okay. And so uh, let me give you another example. If you were to say, are you pro-life? Is being pro-life the hallway? I would say, yes, I believe it's the hallway. Fine. You cannot be a Democrat. Mm. You cannot be a Democrat because, see what I mean? I took a room off the hallway where we can disagree about politics, and I now tried to link it to somebody in the, something in the hallway. That's where we're having a breakdown, Bill, is having charitable Christian conversations about rooms off the hallway. Yeah, interesting, Tim. Um, you say in the book there's uh, some common beliefs about having strong convictions. I know you can name at least three. Uh, give me a little bit more on that because it's co-written. So this could be Rick Langer territory. Yeah. Um, well, there is just about if you're going to have strong convictions, um you're going to be dealing with um, certain principles, and there's going to be some common beliefs. And I was throwing the line out, hoping that you would uh, understand what Bobber is in the water right now. 
Yeah, so let me let me add from a communication standpoint what I think Rick is trying to get. Rick okay. is a theologian and a former pastor. So heading into this conversation, there's just a certain things I have to have done before I get there. One, I have to know my conviction. Is it rooted in Scripture? Mm-hmm. But secondly, is there an opposing view to this? You see, this is what we come across in some churches and even at Biola, Biola University. A person will know his or her conviction inside and out, but they've not read outside of that perspective. So I've not read uh, people who believe the earth is billions of years old because I'm a young earth person. So I know my position, and I only read theologians or scientists who subscribe to my position. So when you and I get into a conversation, I better have been well-read. Yeah, now, no I don't kidding. need to agree with the things that I read, but I, I need to at least know the perspective. And here's one other question I'm going to throw into the mix that people won't like. Is it possible you're wrong in your position? If you've never read the other side, Bill, if I've never considered the other side, how do I know I'm right? Does great, that make sense? Uh, it's a great question. I've often said, uh, if you want to be a person of influence, are you willing to be influenced? Oh, I love that. Oh, that's really good. Or are you just so set in your ways that you've come to your conclusions, you ain't budging from them, and you're not going to look at any other perspectives? That's a difficult place to be. And Bill, wouldn't you agree that in today's argument culture, that really describes where we're at today? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I'm rooted. And here's what makes it harder when you're a Christian. This is my biblical conviction, and I will not move off of what God's Word says. I'm not moving one inch off of what God's Holy Word says. And I want to say, hey, good for you, but you'd have to be pretty closeted not to know that there's a massive disagreement about what Romans 9, 10, and 11 means. I mean, you know, there's a great series that's put out uh, called the Four Views series, and it's so frustrating to read. Are you familiar with this series, Bill, the Four Views series? I'm not. I wish I was. Yeah, so I think InterVarsity puts a version of this out. So they take an issue, let's say Young Earth, okay? They'll take four theologians or four Christian scientists. One will say— Absolutely, it's young Earth. One will say there's no way, and there's no way it's young Earth. The two middle ones are more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. So every time one states their opinion, the three comment. Now, here's what's so frustrating and beautiful about this series. I have my students read these. So, Bill, when they're done, they're like, "Well, I have, I have no idea what to believe," because everybody made sense. Everybody went to the Greek. Everybody produced data. Everybody was articulate, and I'm sitting there now thinking, I have no idea what to believe. And we hate that ambiguity. We hate it. Mm -hmm. So I would just simply say, don't be discouraged. These are all godly men and women who have studied this. I think it shows that there's some flexibility in this particular issue because you've got really committed Christ followers who are arguing different positions. I think that ought to give us just a little bit of comfort that most issues are not very um, simple and cut and dry unless we're talking about the hallway. Mm-hmm. But we're not – young earth is not the hallway. Now, some of your listeners are probably pulling their hair out right now <laughs> because they're saying young earth is the hallway because then – and I want to be charitable. They'll say, okay, if it's not young earth, then we have to 
reinterpret what the Bible is saying to us, and we can no longer trust the Bible. And I'm saying, no, we can trust the Bible, but just know it's complex enough that men and women, godly men and women, can interpret it in different ways and feel affirmed by the Holy Spirit and affirmed by their study. And that is, when I was in seminary, that's what my systematics prof said, that is the mystery of theology. Mm-hmm. Tim, let me take a short break. Dr. Tim Muehlhoff is my guest. He's written a book called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. We'll be back after a short break. are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity, in a special repeat performance. Do I love you, oh my, do I, honey? Did I do Welcome back to the show. Dr. Tim Muehlhoff is my guest today. He's professor of communication at Biola University, and he's also co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. Uh, Tim, right before we went to break, uh, you know, we were talking about... Um, what context for me when I read a piece of scripture, maybe I've even memorized it 25 years ago, but Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And sometimes 25 years later, I get fresh insight to a passage and then I learn exactly what the passage means. And maybe for 25 years, I didn't quite have it right. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> oh, never, Bill. Okay, never. Good. I feel so bad for you. Like, what? What's going on with you? <laughs> All right. So let me let me give you an illustration. So I'm an uh, author with University Press. Okay. So they they periodically send us books. So here's a, I literally have it in my hand, Bill. Here's what it's called. I changed my mind about evolution. Evangelicals reflect on faith and science. Mm. Okay, so I get the book. Now, Biola University is unapologetically, we do not subscribe to theistic evolution. Okay, um, so we just don't do that. You could not teach at Biola University if you believe that God used evolution, right? We, we make no apologies about that, right? Okay. So the book comes across my desk. I open it and I go, oh, well, they're wrong, right? They're wrong. Even though you read who's, who's in the book, it's who's who of Christian – it's James K.A. Smith, uh, oh, Scott wow. McKnight, um, Temper Longman III, Francis Collins. And I look at it, right, a former theater major, a Ph.D. in communication, and Bill, I look at it and go, nope, and I just throw it on my desk. Mm-hmm. Nope. I've never read <laughs> – Bill, I've never read a word of it. And yet I'm absolutely convinced they're wrong because of my position. Right. That's what I'm talking about. I should be able to read that book. Now, listen, maybe if the book was convincing, maybe I go back and have to reinterpret Genesis 1 to 3, and maybe I can't teach at Biola University anymore. Right? Because if I change my mind about that issue, I have to sign a doctoral statement every year. I'm not going to be able to teach at this institution. So here's what Biola does that is good. We're not saying you can't be a theistic evolutionist. We're just saying in our community, this is what we believe, and we're not going to back away from it. So you can't teach here, but let's be charitable to the people who believe something different because the names I just read, these are people with impeccable 
credentials as evangelicals. Now, can we disagree on this issue? Yeah. I'm reading uh, James K.A. Smith's book on Augustine on the Road. Yes. It is brilliant. Oh, Bill. I've had him on. I've had him on the show talking about it. Isn't it? It is an amazing. It's one of my top books of the last, easily last five years. Yeah, it's very interesting. So guess what? We can agree on Augustine. We're going to disagree on this issue, but let's still have fellowship with each other and let's pursue the hallway, right? That's the kind of tension I think we're just going to have to live with inside our church, inside our small groups, and inside a Christian university like Biola. But people don't like that tension. Yeah. And Jesus says, beware of false teachers. So how do we use our discernment to know what's true and what's false? Well, I think uh, we have to first use good Bible study methods to determine what the hallway is. Right? Okay. These are our confessional beliefs. This is what it means to be evangelical, right? So let me be clear. I'm picking on a hallway that is clearly evangelical, right? I may have some brothers and sisters who believe the Bible is inspired but not inerrant, it may have some mistakes along the way, okay? Again, you're not teaching at Biola University with that belief, but let me not attack you, and let me still say that you're my brother and sister in Christ. Mm-hmm. Man, Bill, that is a dance we, don't, we are not doing a good job at. We're just, and you know who, who does a really nice job of this is Tim Keller. In a, a few of his books, he's been very charitable to people that he disagrees with, but leaves room that both can be in the camp of being an evangelical Christian. Don't we want to try to build as many bridges as we can to not only our brothers and sisters in Christ, but the lost world? Well, this is why I think those two books are a good tandem mm-hmm. uh, with some persuasion and with some conviction. Because, Bill, I'm gonna, so let me say something quite controversial, maybe. You have to be pretty insulated to really have such passionate intramural disagreements. But when you realize the threat that the church is facing today, like, listen, I'm not going to let's not get political. President Biden never hid what his agenda was going to be. He always had a problem with religious freedom to a certain extent and has always been pro LGBTQ. That should not surprise any of us. And his vice president is from California. We know a lot about her. So now the Equality Act is coming to the doorstep of of conservative Christian universities like Biola, Westmont, Wheaton, uh, Azusa, and now there's a lawsuit they're going after Cal Baptist and other universities because you cannot deny a person their preferred gender. You cannot say to a person, well, you have to live in the female dormitory because your birth certificate says that you're female. This lawsuit is saying you are discriminating based on sex and you cannot do that. So guess what? We're going to be in a lawsuit that is most likely going to go to the Supreme Court. When you realize how real the threats are, to our very existence of Biola University, I hope, Bill, we would set aside these intramural conversations as important as they are, because we have a real threat that's coming to our doorstep that threatens the very existence of a, of a conservative school like Biola University. We better get, we better be rowing in the same direction when we meet this external threat, and that's the danger of us not rowing in the same direction, because we're so passionate about these rooms off the hallway, we're forgetting that there's a very real threat that wants to stamp out our existence. Mm -hmm. 
we're listener supported here, uh, Tim. We've been around seventy three years. But mm. at what point do protesters show up in front of our doors saying the biblical convictions we have is hate speech? Oh, it's coming, Bill. It, it almost hit us uh, before the election. Uh, first, President Trump, when he was first elected, there was a bill called Senate Bill 1136, I think it was, mm-hmm. that was going through Sacramento, and was, and we were going to have a legal challenge on that, saying a person can choose their own gender identity, and you cannot disagree with it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we were ready for the fight, and then President Trump got elected, and the um, people that were pushing the bill now felt that there was a greater threat than just conservative Christian schools, but now President Trump. We dodged the bullet briefly, but now with the Equality Act, Bill, I think this is going to have an effect on the church on Christian organizations like Faith Radio and Biola, it's going to be a willowing of the American church. A mm-hmm. lot, we're kind of fat right now with people who are like, yeah, I'm a, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a conservative. Sure, sure. Put me down. <laughs> because it doesn't cost them anything. Yeah. Now, if it's going to cost you something, now we're going to see a willowing of the church, and maybe at the end of the day, we're going to be this lean, mean community that, hey, listen, I I can trust the person to the left and to my right. Yeah. We're taking the shot because we're in this position. But when we when we fight back, I hate using that phrase, we better do it in a way that's winsome and Christ-like. I agree. Tim, thanks so much for doing the show. It's been a delight. You bet. Thank you, Bill. Bye-bye. I always enjoy being with you. My guest has been Dr. Tim Mulehoff, and his book is Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.